Hey, I'm Johnny King, and I'm a life enthusiast, growth mentor, and lifestyle fulfillment coach. I've dedicated my life to helping anyone who feels like they're not making the most of their potential to level up and live the legendary life of their dreams. You deserve to be the king or queen of your own kingdom, and I'll be here to help you be the best version of you that you can be. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it. What's up, you guys? Welcome to the Johnny King Show. As usual, if you're just tuning in for the first time, thank you for joining me. Uh, I am your host, Johnny King. And today I'm excited to have my brother along with us, my older brother, uh, as we talk about how our childhood was kind of living up, uh, living up, <laughs> growing up fatherless. Uh, it's actually not that funny. Um, we can laugh about it now, but living up growing up, raising up, uh, without a father. And so without further ado, here is my brother, Peter King and myself. What's up? It's Johnny King. And you're here with the Johnny King show. I'm sitting here in a beautiful hotel called the Broadmoor hotel with my bro, Pete. Hey, and he has his <laughs> podcast. Uh, yeah. The PK experience, PK experience. It's crazy. <laughs> Is it? Uh, Isn't it? It has been crazy. Actually, the the you know what's actually really crazy about it is the fact that um, it's flowed so well that it's you know when you go about life and you have a vision for something and it just like you hit resistance after resistance after resistance and then other times you do things and it just flows. This has just been one of those things that, to your point, crazily has just flowed um and why that's crazy to me is because it, it wasn't ever really anything that i thought i would do it wasn't anything that i had a vision of or like you know <clears throat> people just kept saying oh you ask good questions or you should have a podcast or I'm like really like why I, I didn't even think of myself in that way um you've had some big names on it though too i've been very fortunate to have had some big names and ironically enough perhaps the biggest name Simon Sinek was the first one that I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, as many people know, if you don't know who Simon Sinek is, you should certainly search him out. But um, many people do know who he is. He's a, a brilliant mind. Uh, he articulates things in a way that uh, simplifies very complex complex topics. Um, and I saw his TED Talk video, and I was like, it just I just felt so naturally compelled. I got to talk to this guy. Yeah. Like I have. I don't care what it takes. I need to just talk to him. I want to find out more about who he is and why he does what he does. The thing that really blew me away in that TED Talk that I was really struggling with at the time was he gave me uh, a, a model for what I really wanted to do. Because at the time, I was really looking into, like, well, what is my own purpose and trying to discover purpose um, and I was pretty good at sort of helping people, like seeing the genius in other people and helping flush that out in them, but I was really struggling to find out what my purpose was. And I kept attributing my purpose to some thing, whether it was like within, you know, at the time I was doing a lot of real estate investing or uh, some type of entrepreneurial venture or uh, is my purpose being a dad? Is my purpose, whatever. And I kept thinking of the purpose as being vocation, a, a specific vocation. Yes. Simon <clears throat> and watching his video really opened my eyes to like, oh, your purpose can be to help other people find their purpose. Like, and that just, 
it was sort of like this meta moment where I could see another layer that I didn't see before. And that really opened my mind to like, oh, I want to do that. I want to help people do that because I feel naturally uh, compelled and skilled to do that. So I think it's pretty fun. cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, he's had uh, a bunch of other people. I, Alison Armstrong is one of uh, one of those people that I love. Who else that people might know? Um, Guy Kawasaki. He was yeah. one of the original employees at Apple, worked with Steve Jobs. He's a venture capitalist. Um, Brian Scudamore is a billionaire. He's got an amazing platform now um, that helps other entrepreneurs. He, he might know – most people know him through his one of his first extremely successful ventures, the 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Um, I've had uh, Jarek Robbins, Tony Robbins' son. Yeah. He was uh, really fun to have on. Another really fun guy, Steve Sims, um, which I think we've talked about a little bit before. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, just a larger-than-life thinker. I love people like that. Um, fun personality oozing out, you know, um, like you could smell the whiskey through the microphone kind of a guy. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a fun ride so far. So it's definitely, uh, something we thought we'd just sit down since I'm just about to start my podcast coming into 2020. Pete's done uh, a hell of a job over the last year and a half, two years, two years, uh, with his podcast. So he's been a huge mentor. Um, but we have a lot of similar passions and I was just thinking about this as I was sitting here. You know, people have, I mean, <clears throat> when my brother was uh, dating the, the mother of his children back in high school, uh, she wasn't the mother of your Not, not yet. Not yeah. yet. Before they <laughs> had kids. Be. Yeah. She would call and she'd be like, hola mi amor. I'm like, hey, what's <laughs> up? You know? And she'd talk for like 10 minutes before she realized that she wasn't talking to, you know, Pete. She was talking to me. So if you have a hard time deciphering between us, oh, I didn't, didn't you know, think of that. maybe we should say Johnny speaking, Pete speaking. <laughs> Pete would like the microphone now. Pete's floor, um, or have a chime, a different type of chime. We didn't think that through. Yeah, I've actually had your girlfriends. Can we go there? I don't know if we want to Yeah, go. so many girlfriends. So many girlfriends. Around. I've actually had your girlfriend say, like, oh my God, you sound so much like Johnny. And I'm yeah. like, well, but to be fair, Johnny sounds a lot like me. Yeah, I, I was, I mean, the, but I did come a few years before you did. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. But anyways, <clears throat> hopefully you can decipher between the two of us as we talk. I'm a little uh, congested, so maybe that'll help a little bit. But we uh, we certainly have had similar experiences growing up, being brothers. Uh, he's four years older than me. We have a, a younger brother, four years younger, uh, older sisters, one older than my brother, my older than Pete, and then the youngest. Um, so there's five of us in the family and it's just real interesting to see the similarities, but also the differences of how we've experienced life growing up with the same parents, but then also how we've, uh, you know, translated things differently. So I thought we'd jump into, since we both have a, a passion, a mutual passion for just conversations about masculinity, uh, what it means to be a man today. We've had struggles because we both kind of had a, uh, uh, what do you call it? A, Turbulent? <laughs> no, but, um... We call it with the dad that's not there. Absentee. Absentee father. Uh, no knock on my dad, but you know he's going through his own struggles and handling his own demons, which we now have greater respect for now than we did when we were younger. And yeah, <clears throat> I mean, plainly he was a workaholic. Like he just was yeah. constantly working. Demons or not, he was busting his ass, um, building building his empire. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I thought we'd jump into a little bit of that, and I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, that first question I mentioned before we, we jumped on here, which was like, what, what was your experience 
what is, if I could refer to it as your wound, because I have my own, yeah. as relates to not having dad around yeah. uh, until like the last 10 years. Right. You know, but, uh, and not a whole lot of people even know our story. They might be listening to this and not even really fully know. So why don't you kind of film on the 30 second mom, dad. Yeah, a little over a decade ago, um, for all intents and purposes, I think we had a very uh, picturesque family. I think a lot of people, this is me speaking into what I think other people sort of saw us as, but our mother was the epitome of a mom. She was unconditionally loving, chocolate chip cookies at home after school, home cooked meals, holidays, you know, were central. She was at every baseball game, soccer game, basketball game. Um, wasn't perfect by any stretch, but her, her love was perfect. And, uh, my dad worked his ass off, provided abundantly for our family, um, really started his business really started to take off when I was in high school, you were uh, probably junior high. Um, but he wasn't there. And so there was that issue. And then, uh, in 2006, unfortunately my mother, uh, uh, passed on and a little after that, my father ended up coming out of the closet telling us he was gay. And um, it was right then that we really sort of, we all as a family went through our own various crossroads uh, in how to deal with that. And interestingly enough, my mother was very religious, uh, very conservative in her nature. And um, so we, we grew up in sort of that Christian uh, influence about morality, um, how homosexuality was a sin, although you know, we don't. We never really talked about it that much. We didn't talk about. At least I don't remember. Did you ever talk about that with mom or? No, she would just send us articles and stuff like that here and there. Yeah, I, I don't ever remember thinking like, oh, those are bad people or whatever. I just remember thinking like, from a mor- moral standpoint, it was man plus woman equals morality. Like that. Yeah. That was about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So anyway, I think when dad came out of the closet, it was like, all right, I had to wrestle with that a little bit. I had to figure out where do I stand with all that and how am I going to navigate that? Yeah. So, yeah, I think for me too, um, it was, it was an interesting thing because I, I tell it from my side of the story, which is, um, I just remember always, uh, making fun of my dad. Um, I felt like people always made fun of me because we were quote unquote the rich kids. Um, or I was the rich kid. Um, even though I never actually felt that way, but I guess it's easier not to feel that way when you're in it than when you're looking on the outside. But certainly we had a big house um, and things like that. But I do remember the house being on the market, off the market, on the market, off the market yeah. as he struggled with his cash flow, with the business. Um, and some weeks we'd have plenty of money to get groceries and all the weeks we wouldn't. So, you know, <clears throat> um, first world white kid challenges. Yeah, you know, it is and it isn't. <laughs> I mean, I think <clears throat> a lot of people don't realize that those are genuine issues. Those are genuine problems. And when you're looking to grow a business, you know, now I have a little bit more maturity to look back on it a little bit. And I, you know, I look at what dad went through and the sacrifices and, and frankly, the risks. Nobody has taken bigger risks that I know of yeah. uh, putting it all online and delivering, like yeah. figuring it out and yeah. finding a way. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of touch and go moments. The stress that that puts on in a relationship. Of course, we saw mom and dad. A lot of times at odds, trying to you know figure that out. Yeah. Um, the stress that it then puts on extended family and and even our community, uh, the employees, etc. There's a lot that goes into that that I don't think a lot of people think about. They mm-hmm. see the nice house, the nice cars, the nice vacations, and they go, "Oh, it must be nice." There's a lot of stress that goes along with that. Yeah. Um, well, 
to jump back real quick and just yeah. finish my side of the story, which is just essentially, I think I grew up <clears throat> um, really disrespecting my father any chance I had the opportunity to, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of in a backhanded way, like, well, it's his money. It's not my money. I didn't choose to, to, to live in this house or whatever. Like, I just was very, very upset. And I just remember that growing and growing and growing. And I remember um, thinking the last thing I ever wanted to be was to be like my father. Mm-hmm. And I remember the feeling that I had when I was, when I got married in 2007 and I was literally walking back to the honeymoon suite, which should have been, you know, a a time of excitement and, you know, like, all right, honeymoon suite, here we go. Instead, I was thinking like, I had like such horror or like fear of like, oh my God, it all of a sudden hit me like I'm married. I got through the boyfriend stage. I got through the fiance stage, winging it, faking it. But now I'm actually a husband and I have, I flat out have no idea what it means to be a husband. So there's absolute fear in me. And that was kind of the beginning of like a massive uh, facade for me. of just kind of tr- attempting to fake what it meant from being being a husband. Did you really feel like you were winging, like the fiance stage, or just that whole? Yeah, I didn't. Not not necessarily winging, because that's not too hard to just go to from shower to shower and like you know right. have people give you. But there was and... tension there, or exa- anxiety there about. <laughs> yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know if I consciously felt it, but I think once I was walking back to the honeymoon suite, it finally like it consciously hit me. I'm like. Holy shit! Oh really? What? Yeah, I don't. I don't know what I'm gonna do. And that just began the, the downward spiral. I think of, of uh, of my marriage in many sense, just because I I was fearful of not becoming him. And yet, over the course of the couple of years, the following couple of years during my marriage, all I did was become more and more like him. Mm-hmm. And so my anger <clears throat> finally came to a boiling point, and that's where I called my oldest sister one night, and I was like, I am so done with that. I want. I literally used the word divorce. I was like, I I'm ready to divorce myself of him. I I want nothing more to him of him. And granted, I was still reeling from mom's death. I was still realizing. I was still struggling, realizing that I was not doing a good job in my marriage whatsoever. And then, um, yeah, she's she, she. We hung up the phone. She called him. I was like, you got to do something about Johnny because you're about to lose him. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, <laughs> this has been kind of crappy since you came out. Or no, he hadn't come out since mom had passed. You're not around anymore because he was just traveling, remember? He was yeah. like not even around. So we kind of felt like we lost mom and dad. So I think that's when he really felt his back up against the wall. And that's when he came out to her. And she called me back and said, hey, don't do anything rash. Dad wants to meet you in his office tomorrow morning. And I was like, that's weird. She's like, just hear him out. And uh, and then you can go from there. I was like, all right. So that was the next morning he he came out to me. So I was the second one he came out to. You were the third he came out to, right? I don't know. Uh, I think you were. <clears throat> and then, uh, yeah. But anyways, it doesn't really matter in that sense. But that that moment of him actually coming out, though, was what I what I often refer to as my my Grinch stole Christmas moment, where my where my heart I felt like at least for my father, mm. and for my mom too was like my mom, my dad, not yours. <laughs> yeah, for mom and dad was uh, like as small as a. You know, a piece of coal. Right. Remember? And like when he came out, like my heart grew a hundredfold in terms of its ability to feel empathy. And that's when I was just like, oh my God. Like I just, I just totally forgave him at that moment. Uh. Cause I, cause after I just 
railed on the guy for an hour and a half because he's like, your sister says you have something to tell me. I was like, uh, or something you want to get off your chest. I was like, hell yes. So I gave him an hour and a half worth of peace of my mind, which yeah. is a lifetime of just like, you are for that. Uh, for you this. were there for this. How could you say this to a son? How could you do this? Blah 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 blah. blah you know. And then he. And then after I was done, he's like, "Well, I got something to tell you." And he starts to cry, and he can't say anything. And I'm like, "Oh, damn!" Like the thought was going through my mind is like, "Now he's gonna tell me that he's got cancer and he's dying." And I just ripped him a new one. And so I already started to soften in that moment. Like, "Holy shit, this is not good." But when he said that I'm gay, my initial thought was, "A, he's confused," you know. Because, like, my identity for him had to be right. Well, I mean, he's the father of five children. Like, (laughs) are you sure you're gay? Right. (laughs) And I was like, you're kidding. I asked him three separate times if he was kidding. And I remember that one of the times, like, right before I asked him the third time, I literally was looking around the room. I was looking in the corner. I was looking for, like, hidden cameras. I was like, this, I was looking over my shoulder, like, there's got to be hidden cameras here because my dad's such a jokester. But, of course, his body language, the tears rolling down his face, the way he's looking at me is, says he's not lying, yeah. but I could not comprehend it. But then there was also part of my head that was like, my brain was like, this makes total sense. Yeah, All the pieces started yeah. coming together. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then mom, okay, so that would be why she didn't necessarily feel like she had to fight for their marriage or fight for life. I don't know. It's just like amazing how quickly your brain just starts to make meaning yeah. in that very moment. Yeah. I'll never forget that. So that to me was the beginning of the healing of my relationship with dad. Yeah. But what was it like for you, switch, going back to you, what was it like for you growing up? Do you feel like you consciously or subconsciously felt the pressure to be the patriarch of the family because dad wasn't there? I naturally assumed that role being <coughs> the oldest boy of ultimately five kids. Um, but I didn't – as a kid, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't have the context to be able to say, you know, I mean outside of obvious pain, obvious physical pain – a lot of children don't have the context to know what they don't know. And so they don't know that, oh, this, this is a really shitty situation whatever. Well, you know, my ex-wife was from Guatemala. We'll go down to Guatemala. Well, you see kids in utter poverty and they're running around. They're just laughing. They're smiling. They're playing soccer. Like life is amazing when you're a kid. Like you don't know what you don't know. So I, I didn't really know that. And I sort of assumed the role of a father-ish type figure just because there was five kids and, you know, mom asked me to help out. Um, and I just naturally gravitated in that role. And I liked doing that. I, I try, you know, I really did think often about, am I a good role model? Um, is, is this the right thing? You know, and obviously I'm a brother too. So there was, there was those moments throwing you into the wall or telling you to, you know, why don't you sled down the steep hill first just to make sure. Hey, this is cool. chicken. This is chicken actually. Yeah. When it's not, it's bark or the inside of a tree. <laughs> yeah. Just, I, I do remember being influenced uh, a little bit by some mischievous friends doing that, doing that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't want to name names. I don't want to out anybody, but, um, for the most part, I do remember <laughs> because they're going to come back and get you because of something. Well, the podcast is going to go viral and then <laughs> they're going to go like, damn, they're going to sue me for, yeah. Yeah. For, uh, that's really really smart. It is scary, um, but no, I, I I do remember the center of gravity of my intentions as an older brother was to 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 be a good role model, to set an example, to be there, um, you know, for for you guys, for for the younger <coughs> siblings. Because I didn't ever feel that. I, that wasn't even a thought in my mind. Right. I mean, ultimately to be a bigger, I was just a, the bigger brother of two younger siblings, both of. You know, younger brother and younger sister, but it was 
it wasn't something that I actively was probably thinking about where it was for you, right? Well, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to see the different um, patterns that come out of where you are in your, in your family in the siblings. There's been a lot of study and research on that to show, you know, that, that older siblings tend to take leadership roles, tend to be more risk takers, et cetera. Middle children are often struggling. Super to... serious. <laughs> no, they're and, often uh, trying great to Great find... students. Um... <laughs> yeah, there's always the exceptions yes, to those. Yes, uh, You know, and then the youngest ones are often uh, very funny or, or trying to do something to get some attention because it's like, you know, and I have so much empathy for my youngest sister. She's the fifth of five and... Um, Imagine being born and your parents' attention is already divvied up. You only get one-fifth of their attention. Yeah. You know, I, I had the privilege of growing up being the second oldest and getting a decent amount of attention in those early – those early years are so instrumental in a child's development. So anyway, it's just kind of fascinating to see those types of uh, dynamics that come out of that. What was your question though? No, the question was, you know, what, what were some of the areas that – or the experiences that you had – being the the patriarch, uh, or you know, were you did you ever butt heads with dad or like the, old, the I don't remember. I mean, dad will often say like, "No, I was there." My my thought is like, "Well, if you were physically there, I don't remember you emotionally there." And the only thing that I really remember is like at some point when mom's spankings no longer hurt, and I laughed at her when she spanked me. She's like, "Well, when your father gets home, and he could still spank me hard enough to draw tears, to care, yeah. you know." Um, but that was kind of the only real. I, I, authoritative influence. I can count on one hand, not even using all my fingers, the memories that I had with that. And and it the only memory that I really have of him when I was young was he took me probably once or twice. It probably was and forgive me, Dad, if it was more than that, but I, I probably was only two or three times tops where he took me to the arcade and we yeah. played and I played Pac Man. And yeah. that was the world to me. Like that was so cool that I could go do that with my dad and do something that I loved and thought was cool or whatever i don't have any other memories outside of that um friday night popcorn he would make popcorn on friday nights yeah um we'd watch you know the good old dukes of hazard <laughs> night rider get our indoctrination from i vaguely remember that yeah i remember dad bringing home lobsters one time i do remember that that was a big deal yeah like little tiny i have to I, that's the thing though i have to really yeah search for it yeah and i wonder if some of that is just due to the fact that we were born in a generation where every second wasn't documented. Like my kids are going to know every, literally every, you, you, you open up iPhoto and you see every week That's of true. every month of every year, their entire life. That's true. Cause I'm always, you have your phone now. It's everywhere. Yeah. So it might be just like, I wonder how many memories he has of his dad. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it might just be a product of the, of the generation. Although obviously he did work all the time and he wasn't there. And, and I have friends that whose dads were around and they have, you know, fishing trips and, which is certainly better than his upbringing where the memories he probably has is him him or his older brother getting in fistfights with our grandfather yeah i mean i that to me has been a big part of so to give you a little perspective when dad came out to me um without telling that whole story I, i i wrestled through a lot of that but then i did start to have empathy when i started to think about uh, I sat. I had a breakfast with him one time, and I started asking about his upbringing. And somebody had t- I, I'd heard this before, where somebody said, "You know, the role of a father is to push the football all the way as far down the field as possible. Right. You're trying to get in the end zone. That's your intention. You're trying to score a home run, get a touchdown, whatever that whatever is. metaphor you <laughs> want to use, whatever sport. 
um, <laughs> get the curling right into the center of the target. Nice, yeah. Yeah, I use that one a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you're trying to do the best you very much can, obviously. But um, the role of the father is to do that. But the role of the son is to pick up the ball wherever the father left it and to push it further down the field. And I love that metaphor because it, it allowed me to see, man, dad pushed the football field, football way down the field from where he was, right. the experience that he experienced. Um, and I started to just have more maturity about it. Obviously, at that point, I had two kids of my own and I was starting to realize, oh, I'm making this shit up half the time anyway yeah. Yeah. myself. So he did the best he could. And I think to some degree, he even said like, yeah, I, I needed to not be around because I didn't even know what I was doing. And I, mom was such a great mom. Yeah. And, and so out of his own sense of his own sense of morality, morality, like he didn't want to fuck it up. So like, let me just go work hard. Let me make money. And he didn't even really want kids. <clears throat> I know. That's what's crazy. <laughs> he so here's five. He didn't want, and mom had, how many miscarriages does she have? A couple, <clears throat> right? Yeah. So we're just outing it all right here. Yeah. Just hanging all the dirty laundry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, mom. <clears throat> But uh, I think that's the interesting part is when you do start to um, – and this is what I, I – in the work that I do with men and, and similar with you, Pete, I feel like um, – well, I can just – let me just speak on my own behalf and, and you could probably te- you know attest to your own experience. Like my relationships and my experience in life has, be- has gotten so much more fulfilling and so much um, smoother – I don't think it's any coincidence that with your podcast, it's just been flowing because, um, you know, I started my first real deep, you know, personal development work in 2009, 10 years ago, you know, you started shortly thereafter, you know, but I think it's just, you start to unravel that, uh, that ball of, of, uh, you know, pain and heartache and start getting to the real core of the issue. And through that, then oftentimes can come healing and forgiveness and growth and all those other stories or roadblocks or things that get in your way that slow you down in life or that show up in other relationships, <laughs> aka our, you know, joint, our, our, our own individual marriages that were failed. Um, you know, there's a lot there to unpack. And I feel like a lot, a lot of men are really in pain and they don't even know where to begin and they don't even know what the source is. Yeah. But it all comes from our childhood. A ton of it comes from the childhood. Where else would it come from? Well, and that's the thing. A lot of guys don't like to admit that though. A lot of guys, you'll hear a lot of guys say things like, oh, I know, proverbial lay down on the couch and let me pour out my heart and tell you and you can tell me my daddy issues or whatever. Well, yeah, you fuckhead. It is your daddy issues because guess what? That's a pretty big influence in your life and so is your mother. Those are the two, outside of God perhaps, those are the two most important influences in your life. And we don't really realize how much we take in as kids about the world. And we make these decisions with zero filter about what love is, about what relationships (laughs) are, about uh, right and wrong. Um, We take all of that in with zero filter and, and then we grow and we start to mature and we get to young adult age and now we have filters. Now we're blocking things. Now we're saying, oh, screw that. That doesn't work for me or yeah, that's cool or whatever. But we have this sort of subconscious blueprint that we created with these huge influences that we have zero awareness of. And so a lot of times you'll you'll see men today that are just angry and yeah. they snap and they, and they fire back at their kids or they have zero tolerance or, or very little patience with their wives and they're just so angry and they're like, I don't know why. Right. And they're on the it, it, and it always comes down to uh, growth. Always comes down to one of two things: either you're in 
uh, either you're wired for it and you like it, mm-hmm. and it's, you're just one of those weird freaks like you and me that are like, I just want to grow. I yeah. think it's cool. I want to make the up. most of my potential. Yeah. Or you, you hit a brick wall and there's pain. Yeah. You get the call from the doctor and you got cancer. Somebody dies in your life. Uh, your wife is about to leave you. Like something is the catalyst for like, all right, well, I, I guess I should sort of maybe take this seriously. Um, well, we both, we're both of those. <laughs> yeah, right. I, mean, I, hit, I, I hit that proverbial wall, yeah. which provo- kind of provoked me. However, if you do look back, I think because of mom's influence and everything else, <clears throat> we were more to be that first than that second. But yeah. we definitely didn't, <laughs> we didn't support that fast enough before she hit the fan. Yeah. In each of our corresponding lives, I think. For sure. But this this really is the um, this is the opportunity for anybody that's listening to understand that these relationships are so key and they tend to be uh, either major breaks or major accelerators in your life. And when you start to uncover your own personal experience, the influences that you had, the limiting beliefs that you concluded that literally are part of your operating system and your mental uh, in your mental operating system and you start to see like so for you you mentioned uh, oh I'm the the rich kid and you had you had some meaning that you made out of that and you had some conclusions about what it means to be a rich kid and, and how that influenced your behavior right yeah. um, I had a similar experience too where um, my you know I would I when I was in high school and I would borrow mom's car she had a, a convertible it was like a fun little sporty convertible car and like I was the coolest guy, yeah. right? Well, then when I drove my car, the crappy little Toyota Corolla, <laughs> nobody wanted to ride with me. Yeah. And it, I, and I concluded at that time, um, my to go, my real friends are the ones that will ride with me in the Corolla. And though there was a handful of those guys that did that, <clears throat> and so in other words, I created this association to money and wealth that was a negative association. And that I didn't want to be a part of that. So, um, you know, when I thought about the the, we're getting a little bit of a uh, an interruption here. Everything okay? Oh, good. Oh, we got some chocolates and waters. Excellent. By housekeeping. Turn down service. Turn down service. Um, so I was just saying how like my the Corolla to me was my was my filter because my I thought uh, my my real friends are going to ride with me in the Corolla. Yeah. Like if they're if they're just hanging out with me because they want to hang out in the convertible this that or whatever, yeah. like it's all fun and everything. But you know, what? like you're just here because you want right. you want a piece of that. Right. And um, so I blue, the blue Toyota Corolla. Yeah, the shitty little the, the <laughs> car that I used to drive into high school, and of course I was always like five minutes late or whatever. So I'm screaming into the parking lot as much as you can scream in a Toyota Corolla, yeah. which is not very much. Yeah. yeah, pulling into the parking lot, jumping out and running to class. With the car still running, oh yeah, because I'd take the key out and the car was like, "Man, I'm gonna keep running for <laughs> whatever right. reason." And it put put out, right? Yeah, and people would be like, "Hey, your car's still on." I'm like, "No, can't talk. Gotta go." To school. Like, like I got it, I got it, I know what's going on, right? Yeah, and then eventually the car would sort of <laughs> burn itself out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I actually was just thinking about that because it was like, how much, um, how much story did I create around that? Instead of just thing. looking at it yeah. and going, well, of course they wanted to ride in the like the the cooler fun car because it's fun. Yeah, like they're not anti your friends just because they wanted to have yeah. fun. Yeah, and yet I made a story then, and that created a lot of 
I believe, friction in my life yeah. with some of my friends yeah. that uh, probably wasn't fair. Well, and how much, you know, again, like having grown up in a typical middle class, you know, family where it was, I, I remember until like high school, uh, it was probably late high school when I felt like, <coughs> like, oh gosh, dad's business was really starting to hum along. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, the, the genesis of the feast or famine money programs that I have, you know, where it's yep. like, it's, it's all, it's either you're feasting and things are crazy and things are going, going great. Or it's, it's back to paycheck to paycheck to <laughs> blue Corolla, yeah. you know, um, and I think they, they attempted to instill in us, obviously, that they didn't just ever give us anything. You know, we certainly had a great, you know, upbringing and, and uh, education, but they, they tried to, you know, they were, as, as, as we would too, if, if your business, you, your personal business was growing, like how do you want to give your children the best, you know, which was dad's biggest fear was like not wanting to have kids until he could, you know, give them what he couldn't have when he was grew up so poor. Yeah, financially. Yeah. Like how do you how do you manage that? But of course as kids we don't think about that as like a <laughs> from an adult perspective. Right. We we create these kind of victim stories, I guess. Yeah. You know, I I watched a video a little while ago of me playing soccer when I was in grade school. It's probably in gosh, this was in Connecticut, so it was I think it was in fifth grade. And I, <clears throat> I remember watching this video, and it's it, it shows me getting the ball, and I do this like sweet move, like this cool little deep move, totally fake this guy out, uh, started <coughs> dribbling, good ball control, faked another guy out, and made a nice pass, and then the guy that I passed to missed the ball or something, and you see me kind of like throw my arms up and like oh, and like drop my shoulders, like head to the ground and I remember I dude I remember what I was feeling at that exact moment like it took me back to that moment and I remember thinking like what's the fucking point like I do all this amazing stuff and it didn't it didn't amount to anything right and and it directly translated to as an adult now looking back what I really needed what I was really wanting was fatherly attention fatherly validation fatherly like oh that was a great move son or like oh you totally faked him out or yeah. or are oh, you a great soccer player or just freaking there like yeah. showing up he, he, he never came to those right yeah. and mom bless her heart like she never knew how to connect to the masculine spirit it was always you did such a great job honey and it just it always it and maybe you felt this too at times like it almost pissed me off oh yeah like you don't see me you yeah. don't understand what i'm going through yeah. so when you try to give me love here <laughs> It feels it's frustrating, right? Um, well, what's your what's your uh, your Tony Robbins date with destiny question? So secondary question. Yep. So in the date with destiny program that Tony Robbins runs, he has this brilliant um, session on what he calls his primary. your primary question, yeah. and he walks you through how he discovered this idea that all of us are walking around with this subconscious question that drives all of our behavior yeah right and so he walks you down this um sort of formula that he has for you to uncover what your own primary question is that drives all of your other behavior and my primary question as i discovered in that program was <laughs> what is the point anyway and what's interesting but it was already instilled at, in fifth grade easily because that was your yes 
exact words that, that was came my out of your mouth when you modality. Passed. Yeah, yeah. The, head, the drop in my shoulders, hanging my head. People used to, mom used to always say to me, "You have such a chip on your shoulder," and I'm like, "I don't know what that means, and I don't know how to get rid of it." And <laughs> well, and I kind of see your point. <laughs> yeah, but I I don't. What do you want me to do with that? Yeah. Like, I, I didn't know how to yeah. contextualize that. Yeah. Yeah. And now looking back, especially as a father to both a fa- uh, daughter and a son, it's like, dude, I know exactly where the chip yeah. was coming from. I yeah. know exactly what that boy needed. Yeah. And that was the thing watching that video. I'm like, man, I wish I could go back and just give that boy a hug. Sure. And just pull him off on the sideline and go like, hey, you're doing that. Sure. Or, you know, it's okay. <clears throat> lift your other teammates up, whatever. But uh, Which is the advantage of what we have now as, as the, the future generations and why I feel like it's so good to have these conversations now. Yeah. Um, because I'm, I'm in Denver. I started this past year, these, these men's groups and these each, each month men are showing up in mass. And I think a lot of them are realizing, you know, they can no longer <laughs> avoid these types of, of things that, uh, he's, they see that men are starting to handle their shit. They're starting to, uh, unravel the, you know, the, the stuff that went down in their childhood, but they don't know really where to begin. And this is the, the great thing that we have at this time in, in our lives and in this, in, I guess, generationally, we have the tools and the ability to start handling this pain so that we don't keep passing along to future generations, you yeah, know, which absolutely. is a huge benefit. And the conversations that you're having <clears throat> with your children, I know the conversations that my older sister and my younger brother having with their kids are so much further along just because mom and dad didn't really have the tools. Yeah. You know? Yeah. When you think about the access that we have today through <coughs> the internet, podcast, YouTube, um, social networking, like there is no excuse not to get an answer for whatever problem that you have today. And I don't say that lightly because I've dealt with my own shit and psychological frustrations and, you know, mild depressions and loneliness yeah. and um, sense of purpose and all that kind of stuff. I know it's not easy, but the answers are there. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's such an abundance of resources today that, you know, our parents just didn't have the, the privilege to have for sure. Yeah. I remember, um, I think I was in sixth grade when I, when I came across a book that was sitting on my mom's, um, on our mom's, uh, office desk, which was called Will Our Love Last? <laughs> and it makes so much sense now that she, she, she was reading that. Um, <laughs> cause she did, I mean, without going into their story, she, she knew that my dad was gay, uh, but it was the elephant in the room, something they never really talked about, um, and so I think it was one of those things she probably was really struggling through, um, <clears throat> but I remember picking that book, I'm like, oh, this is interesting, and I decided, I asked her, like, hey, do you mind if if I read this with you and we can talk about it, and she was like, sure, that was like the first um, self-help book that I ever read, and I remember being like, oh my gosh, like, this is amazing, and I remember then helping some of our mutual friends who I won't mention as they were struggling through their, their relationship, um, just as a junior high student, you know, uh, or maybe a freshman in high school, just taking stuff out of that book that I, that I started to kind of absorb. And I was just like, Oh, and then it was, you know, men from Mars, one from Venus and various other classics, um, there in the late eighties, early nineties. And I think that's just, that just shows how, we've just been on the cusp of so much personal development, you know, especially now with <clears throat> social media and everything else that mom and dad just didn't have. So, you know, that's a big part of it. It's just having the empathy. I think that's where, uh, and I mentioned this in maybe uh, this last month at my men's meeting, 
shame is one of those things that uh, that I feel like most everyone feels, yeah. um, men especially, and that the antidote to shame is empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, and and but to get to empathy, uh, typically requires some level of understanding. And that was the case for me too. Like, oh, once I understand why this and this happened, so then, so that I mean, I can say I just I forgave mom and dad so much right. when I had the empathy of the the information. But past generations, and and even just you know, so many people that I've worked with over the last decade, they're like, well, I don't want to burden my children with this. I don't want to be a burden like that. It's like you don't realize that your unwillingness to open up and share either with your children or your spouse or your siblings or whoever you have conflict with actually just perpetuates and deepens and worsens yeah. the pain, right? <clears throat> then if, if you actually just call it out and smash the, the, the monster while it's small, yeah, you know? <coughs> Excuse me. So anyways, I guess that, that was just interesting to hear your, your experience just growing up and yeah. then kind of what are the things that, you know, you struggled with, um, both when it comes to relationship programs or money programs or masculinity programs. Yeah. But I do know, having read uh, Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, which is a great book, in that book, he talks about how masculinity can only be bestowed by masculinity, yeah. which is also why mom being hardwired feminine, even though she was certainly in her masculine a lot, having to raise five children, but like after the games, you know, when we knew we were so much better than what we showed out there, she'd be like, oh, good job, Johnny, good job, Pete, and there'd be parties like, no, yeah. you have no idea, like... Yeah. I can't accept this. Where if you if you had had a father or even a male mentor, would be like, "You've played better," yeah. you know, or "Hey, let's go break this game tape down," and and you know, then the masculine response to that challenge, yes, where the feminine response to praise, yes, and and getting that feminine praise when in that moment you really need to kind of the masculine challenge, I'd be like, "Good, you know, you, you played all right, but you can play better," yeah. you know, which is. Yeah. We both had the same soccer coach. He yeah. did a great job of that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is really where the masculine mentorship we did not. Well, I'll speak for myself. I did not have maybe a few coaches here and there. Right. You know. Right. But not a whole lot. No. And it's taken now years of us trying to figure it out on our own, <laughs> or through Tony Robbins or through personal development to to kind of start to come into our own. But that for me has wreaked havoc on my first marriage and everything else, where I just didn't know how to to own my own. Yeah, for sure, man. Unfortunately, the common state amongst many, many, many men today is they are frustrated that they're not where they thought they'd be at this point in their life. They are exhausted. They're absolutely tapped. They're drained. Um, They feel like a fraud. They're putting on a mask trying to say, uh, you know, putting on a smiling face um, to their friends when they go out to dinner or, you know, putting on a, a solid, confident front at work and, and trying to, you know, make people believe that they are... Prove that they are enough. Yep. Right. They um, have no real clear sense of what they want. Yeah. No vision. Yeah. Nothing fueling them, no passion. Yeah. yeah. And they're fucking scared. Yeah. That is the state of most men today. That would be the verbatim, like, how I felt when I was married. Yes. Which had nothing to do with her. Nothing. Had everything to do with me. Yes. And where I was lost in being a man. Yes. And unfortunately, what's happening is because you have a lot of, and I'm sure you've seen this now too, obviously, like, 
when I was learning all this, when dad came out of the closet and then I, and I just had a son of my own, it was like, I really need to get clear on what masculinity is, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a father. And because we didn't have that bequeathed to us by other masculine men, yeah. i.e. our father or, and or other father figures, um, we default often to trying to get that sense of validation from women because that's what we did growing up. It came from mom. It came from our teachers at school. It came from, uh, those are the two primary influences growing up, Sunday right? School. Sunday school a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so I had this natural, uh, conditioned behavior to try to go to my wife, my then wife to try to get some sense of, of validation subconsciously. Yeah. And, and it took me a while to start to realize when, you know, to crack that open and realize the fuck am I doing? Yeah. You know, and, and how am I not serving her? Like that doesn't do anything for her. Yeah. That, that's, and that's on me. Like I need to take responsibility for that. And when I started to realize that, of course this is, you know, all this was hitting. It's funny now looking back, this is, you know, almost 10 years ago now or about 10 years ago. Um, just trying to take all that in and absorb it all also while trying to work also while trying to be a dad and yeah. a husband and yeah. still, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I forget where I was going with that, but, um, that sense of masculinity, a lot of men are struggling with today. They don't have that. Not only do they not have the mentorship, but they also have, uh, poor conditioned behavior. And so they're, they're smacking their head against a brick wall, not even knowing that they're doing it. And they, they're in the dark and they don't know how to get out of it. Right. Um, and I think that's 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 what drives substance abuse. Yeah. It's sure. it's not only alcohol and drugs, but it's pornography, it's uh, gambling, it's you know cheating on their you know spouses, it's um, abusing their their children or their wives. It's it's just <clears throat> it's their addiction to their pain. And you know what else it is too? I'm going to throw this one out there too because those are those are absolutely 100 percent true. But those are maybe more of the extremes. Um, Political rants, yeah. uh, getting into arguments, yeah. uh, scrolling on your fucking iPhone. Like, those are also symptoms of a man that's not in his purpose, doesn't have a sense of vision, right. that just robs you of your soul. It robs right. you of this experience, right. of this existence. Right. That, um, like, too many guys uh, have said, yeah, and I was there too. It's like, <clears throat> it's like staying up way too late because you don't want to go to bed yet. To take on another day because you hate kind of the work that you're doing or the life that you're living, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, it's oh, off. finally, like I get home from work and I can finally relax. But then next thing you know, it's already ten or eleven. And you're like, crap, I should, I should, yeah, I should go to sleep, but I don't want to, yeah, because I want to do it all over again. And that's that to me is like hell on earth. So, what are some of the things that you've learned to help men break out of that? Break out of just that, that monotony. Like, so there's that guy that's that we were just talking about. You were like, you were like, that was me in my marriage. Yeah. What are some of the things that you've learned, either in your own experience or at doing these men's groups in Denver, to help break out of that the monotony? Yeah, I think the very numbness. first step is just doing kind of what we're doing now. It's just talking about it. Yeah. You know, um, awareness. <clears throat> awareness. But I that the thing is, even when I was married though, ten years ago, I didn't even have the words to articulate how yes. I was feeling. Yes. And she was like, "How? How?" She would just start to challenge me, and not challenge me, but like try to get out of me more of of you know whatever I was feeling, and I I could I had nothing to say. I was like, yeah. "I don't know." Like, I, no, I'm night life life is tough. Like I couldn't even like I just I'm stumbling over my words, right? Yep. 
well now having just read a lot and done a lot of programs and just been like really really in it i can articulately say oh this is exactly how i felt yeah. this is you know so for me it's that's actually just like <clears throat> someone's like well i have this huge problem of being extremely overweight i can't move i'm i'm super depressed and upset i keep eating you know and i can't stop myself well one good way to change your your thought is, is just start taking action and getting into the gym right? right so just to change your physiology would would be to also uh just like start to lift you know and through that lifting in the gym you know you start to build some confidence and you start getting a little stronger it's the same thing with that in that scenario as it would be with just speaking yeah. right yeah. speaking out your feelings and i think that's why guys keep showing up to these meetings because they typically have not sat down with, you know, at, at our last event, there was, you know, a, a good number of guys and for them to sit down and, and I break them into small groups and for them to sit with other men and be like, most of them, when they first come in, their very first aha is like, I'm not alone. I thought I was the only one feeling these yeah. things yeah. because guys don't sit around and talk about these things. So that's the first aha. It's like, oh, I'm emotionally out of shape as well, you know, and so is he. <coughs> cool. Let's Let's go to the... <laughs> emotional gym together and let's just keep talking about these things but two hours a month certainly isn't enough right it needs to be over coffees and i'll just keep those conversations going i think through that and then just getting the right programs getting the right programs reading the right books you know just delving into the work yeah which takes a lot of courage uh because that's scary shit yeah so i think that is a big part of it because it's like how are you going to go do a job if you don't have the skill set right you know and i think the skills of being able to articulate your feelings as you woo as that might sound is really the key right yeah i don't think it's woo woo at all i I think i mean i kind of geek out on this stuff but i'm making these figures up for a second for the sake of this but there's there's truth in it there's something like i don't know four thousand different words for uh descriptive words in the english language to to describe a feeling an emotion right yeah um most people and again i'm making these numbers up but it's something like this uh, most people only know 17. Yeah. There's 4,000 ex- emotions that you can experience. Most people only know 17. So guess what? You only experience those 17 emotions. When you expand your mind, you realize you have a much broader palette right. to A, experience things, B, to communicate things. Mm-hmm. And if you have any intention ever to mm-hmm. to spend any time with a woman in your life, mm-hmm. these are fucking tools that you can use to help her to help communicate to her where you're at with things uh, and to also better understand where she's at so that you can right. provide your masculine truth to her right. the anchoring the gift of the masculine is is the anchoring of your presence and your truth to her so um, without having these words without you limit your ability to to make an impact yeah in your in your own life in your family's <clears throat> life and ultimately in your work yeah statistically I think you're right I think they say that uh, on average women use about seven thousand words a day yeah. and men use maybe two thousand yeah so men of course uh, are, are usually men of a very like how many times have you heard that like oh my father my grandfather's a man of very few words yeah you know yeah. like yeah no shit yeah. <laughs> you know because it's also been generation behind upon a generation of going through wars or depressions, or um, you know things like that, and and then we don't know how to express it. Yeah. And there's not been a whole lot of uh, encouragement or mentor mentorship there, and then no wonder six times more men are killing themselves than women every single day. Yeah, because I feel like <clears throat> yes, I totally understand and empathize how 
women are, you know, working their way towards equality, you know, in many ways, because they feel like they've gotten the short end of the stick in so many different ways when it comes to society. And yet men, um, doesn't really matter whose fault it is. They just also live in a, in a jail. They feel like they're being held down where they, you know, if they speak, they feel like sometimes they're castrated because they're too emotional and they just, and they, you know, from past generations, they're shunned because emotions don't get things done. You know, right. don't cry, boy. Just go get your work done. Right. Um, and yet now, like that's that's the cage that a lot of men work, you know, live in. Those lives of quiet resignation that they are wanting to escape from, which yeah. so many of them are choosing death, suicide, yeah. over actually speaking. Yeah. And I think that's why this, you know, the, uh, something like this, a podcast, these type of conversations, um, social media, we can certainly use to our advantage. But I feel like there's still something to be said about old-fashioned sitting down with other men. Just speaking <laughs> in each other's presence, speaking out our shame, speaking out our pain, and it gets easier. You know, it's not easy, but it gets uh, a little bit more simple the more we do it because you're just getting more emotionally fit. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that used to be what we used to do, humans. Like, the men would sit by the council fire and we would have, you know, we would talk about the hunt and what went right, what went wrong, how we're going to do it differently. Um, and of course, we'd bust each other's balls like that's what we do as men um and then it's fun and then you develop bonding and you have camaraderie um and then especially when you are on a hunt or soldier in battle like the the guy next to you is literally your livelihood um that type of bond and connection you don't have often in the day nine to five you know cubicle lifestyle that many of us are living in um and so men are absolutely isolated but i will say this though that uh, and this is something that I really sort of embodied, I think, for me personally this summer, is that idea of isolation. Uh, the masculine experience has isolation is part of the part of the formula, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Like, and if and if you cannot develop yourself in isolation, uh, I shouldn't say if you cannot. That is the opportunity. Yeah. Develop yourself in isolation. Yeah. Um, find joy and love and abundance and opportunity and energy and motivation in those moments of isolation because once you do that there is no excuse there is nothing else that will hold you back there's so many people that make decisions and 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 take actions based on well i don't want to be alone or i don't want to be left behind or like and so if you can find that within yourself that's 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 incredibly empowering um, which I don't think that's part of the feminine experience, the isolate. I mean, I think there's loneliness, depression, things of that nature, but um, I think that's the shadow side of the masculine that women are experiencing. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and if you're new to hearing the masculine and the feminine conversation, let me just back up and say, you know, men and women, you know, alike have masculine and feminine qualities. And I think a lot of people will confuse masculine as being male and feminine as being female because... I'd say in more more cases than not, women will be hardwired feminine, which means like when you know that, that they are more likely to, to feel or want to express when they are at home emotionally more feminine qualities where men are more hardwired masculine, but that's not always the case, right? Yeah. Um, but it is those masculine and feminine qualities 
that uh, create balance even within ourselves, but also create polarity between uh, a man and woman or a man and another man or another woman and another woman. There has to still be polarity to, to create that chemistry. And where you, I feel like people get off balance is where they shut down one side or the other. You know, and so women can certainly be, if they're depressed, they are oftentimes in isolation in their masculine, the shadow side of the masculine, not the light side of the masculine. And it's just a downward spiral, mm -hmm. you know. <clears throat> but I think it is interesting to see that when, when the masculine gets stressed, it always goes feminine. And when the feminine gets stressed, it always goes masculine. So it's, it is <clears throat> one of those things where, um, I think I did a video on this not too long ago where it's oftentimes the answer to your question uh, of how to fix this is always counterintuitive to how your natural primal brain wants you to react, yeah. you know? And I think a lot of us as men, you know, will feel like well, I'm not enough, so I must isolate myself to figure it out. You know, it's kind of like even as cliche as it is, you're, you're driving and your significant other or your or your spouse or your woman says, hey, can we just stop and ask for directions? And the guy will say, no, I need to provide this for my own ego, for my own sense of worthiness, that I can get us from point A to point B. What she thinks is it's probably save us a lot more time and be a lot easier if we just ask for directions. And the, the humility, I mean, I get it, but the humility that it takes to actually have a man to stop and ask for directions is, is against, it's counterintuitive to what he wants to do. It's actually probably the best, yeah. you know, <clears throat> uh, problem-solving technique in the moment to get get yourself there on time, save some face with your with your wife or your significant other. Um, but it's just like that when you when you want to get isolated. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've coached over the last ten years. I tell them when when you go into stress, that's the time you need to pick up the phone. That's the hardest time to pick up the phone yeah. and reach out. Yeah. But it ultimately is the answer, you know, is to ask for help when you need it versus, you know, doing the alternative, which which I think keeps you jailed in that place. I found a little hack on that that served me so well <clears throat> because there were definitely low, low, low points when I was going through my divorce uh, with my kids and, and my own struggles and, of course, dad coming out and my wrestling with that and all that. Had I taken the advice, uh, reach out when you're low, I, I never did. I never did. So I hacked it, and this is what I did. I scheduled it. I just put it on my calendar. Once a week, I have a call with somebody, and I can't tell you how many times I was in low, low lows, but it was on the calendar. <laughs> so I called, and, and an hour later when I got off the phone with, with my good friend, yeah. I'm like, oh, man, I feel so much more rejuvenated. Yeah. Uh, I have passion again. I have. Yeah. It was like... Just so that's a little hack. Schedule it. Well, Schedule I, connection. Yeah, and I would say that when people say like, "What if there's one thing that you can say that, you, that you've done, Johnny, consistently since your lowest lows, which was around you know ten years ago when I was going through my divorce as well, and mom had passed and dad had come out, like shit hit hit the fan." I'd say, yeah, I, I I've primarily had a, a coach uh, that I've hired, you know, working with me for the entire decade with the exception of maybe 18 to 24 months, you know, in between coaches where I was looking for a new one, you know, but I've, I've always had someone holding me accountable to either a showing up and talking about what was going on, you know, but still kept me. And then why I like coaches 
versus maybe just a therapist was because they also still, they were results driven and they still pushed me to like, okay, but this is what you need to do in your life to keep moving the ball down the field. And so I'd have that, you know, that counseling or thera therapeutic uh, side of telling them whatever's going on in my life, but then also the challenge of like, okay, well, are we just going to stay in this shit or are we going to actually do some things to change it? Yeah. So having that coach <clears throat> was, yeah, a, a kind of a, a weekly or a bi-monthly call that that helped me not be able to hide from the world mm -hmm. forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And um, 2010 was also when I first started my gym. That was a big part of it for me was actually just getting in service, you know, and I was dependent upon people, you know, lots and lots of people as my gyms were growing I had to show up, you know, even when I was like unhappy and I never walked out of there less happy than when I walked in, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, which is very similar to, to going into a gym, but I wasn't working out with the people. I was just going and serving and getting out of my own head and seeing them happy always inspired me. Yeah. So <clears throat> that was, you know, a good thing too. I just was held accountable to, like you said, I, it was on my schedule. I had to show up and open the gym doors at 5.30 a.m. every single day, yep. you know. Um. Another thing that's helped me in that space is, uh, this is just such a little thing, but music. Yeah. Music has the power to transform your emotions. And it's really, really difficult to be depressed while listening to, you know, a handful of Michael Jackson songs. Like, it really <laughs> is difficult. And if you can think of, if you can think of a song that is anchored in a memory where you were, you know, lighting it up, where things were on fire or you were the man or maybe it was with a girl or whatever. Like those anchoring moments can take, can literally take you right back to those moments. So I found yeah. that music was very helpful. Yeah. Um, movement, whether it was uh, taking action, going to the gym, going for a run, always connection. Yeah. Connection was the other one. Um, scheduling the connection, as we mentioned. Um, I feel like there was one other one that I came up with, but um you probably would go back to looking at the six human needs yeah. and figuring out how to best fulfill Need. those needs yeah. on a eight, nine, ten level, you know, throughout your day or throughout your week, you know, and then actually scheduling those. That yeah. would be maybe time, a topic of another conversation. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. But I think we've all probably experienced too the the times where we actually do want to have a pity party and you turn on the right music to take you even further into your pity party, yeah. you know, yeah. music that'll make you cry yeah. or make you feel like your life is a piece, you know, but like you, you actually want to stay in that moment. Yeah. That's the hard part. Yeah. And that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like anyone listening is like, yeah, it's really hard to ask for help when you, when you don't want it. And I think sometimes that is just a very low level vibrational way that we connect with ourselves is through woe is me moments you know pity parties yeah i think it's helpful to look at the pattern and like is that as you i'm sure you will have heard have heard um pain is inevitable suffering is optional yeah. and that suffering is when we tell that story over and over and over again and so if you find that you're in that pattern i agree but i do think that there are pain is a part of life yeah. and sadness is a part of life um and i do think that sometimes people hold off that sadness and don't listen to the music literally and figuratively yeah. and and actually process that emotion yeah. and therefore they're always at bay like it's always uh they're always pushing it out in front and they never get on the other side of it so i do think that there's value in taking a moment and really feeling the pain and sadness of whatever it is that you're experiencing it, it sucks to be alone yeah. it's really sad yeah. 
Um, and sometimes going through that emotion and just feeling it and experiencing it is the very thing that will help you process it, get it behind you, <clears throat> take a deep breath and go, all right, yeah. okay, still yeah. alive, all right, yeah. uh, who can I call? Maybe I'm going to help somebody, maybe go for a run, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know? Well, it's interesting you bring up the topic of, of uh, suffering because that's what I've learned is that absolutely pain, like you said, and I, I always think back as the people can often relate to <laughs> – Pain as it relates to fitness and muscle growth and everything else, like pain is a uh, requirement of growth. No pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. And that's really, really true. But the suffering, the definition of suffering is a extreme obsession about oneself. And so if you're only making it about yourself, then that is the place where you're, yeah, you're suffering, aka you've got to, if, if you're depressed all the time, you have a pattern this loop, and it's really probably hard to see it for yourself, but you might be able to see it in other people, where you just go into this victim state of making it all about yourself. Yeah. And that's why I think helped me get out of that was that I was, I, I started a business that was in service of others. Granted, that business was still serving my <laughs> making women happy, yeah. you know, old old way of, yeah. uh, of making, yeah, of building self-esteem. And I was actually looking for... <clears throat> My masculinity in serving the feminine, which didn't work, but yeah. it took me a long time to figure that right. out. Oh, man, you know, it's, it's long, crazy. Long time to figure that, out. that to me is crazy how we how we default to our conditioned behavior. Yeah, um, I've shared this with you before too. But at, at the time when my mother, just before my mother passed on, I was living in Florida, close to the beach, had a jeep, had a dog, beautiful wife. Like, yeah, we had our issues, but we were working through things. And I remember at times looking around going like seeing the palm trees and going for a run on the beach and going, yeah, this is, this feels right. Yeah. I'm a, this is what I want to create. Yeah. This is the life that I'm wanting to to build more of. And yet mom getting sick, mom getting sick like in, uh, created so many pattern default um, – default patterns for me behaviors going back to what's familiar when you're under stress you you know we talked about the masculine and feminine but when you're under stress you often go to what's comfortable and what feels right and what's familiar and what was familiar at that time was like let me be close to her you know we up and moved my family uh bought a house paid probably too much for this house (laughs) took a job with my dad which i swore i'd never do Um, and i remember waking up six months later looking out over the parking lot in Missouri, and it was cold outside and miserable, and I went, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> I you... swear to God, I was just looking at an ocean. How the hell? Yeah. And, and also, <clears throat> I remember thinking, like, and I'm grateful that I'm even having a window to look out of. Like, there was many people in the office that sat in the cubicle, and I was like, I felt like it was a luxury to look at the parking lot. How did that yeah. How did that happen so fast? Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. It's crazy how that could well, and isn't that kind of the same experience a lot of us have had coming out of college? Like you come out of college fired up, yeah. ready to take on the world. Yeah. You're going to change it. You're going to do, you know, leave your your print on it and uh, your mark on it. And then next thing you know, you're like, oh, crap, I got to I gotta pay for bills. I got to have some place to live. I got to put food on the table. And you very quickly just go into getting any job. And you just end up a lot of times, at least for me, falling right into the exact experience that I saw mom and dad doing, yeah. you know, which is like, well, that's what's got, familiar. You just gotta, yeah, you gotta get a good education, a good, good job, yeah. and you know, kind of the old school American dream, and that just doesn't work yeah. anymore. So, <clears throat> in wrapping things up, because I'm sure we could talk uh, for never and ever, but I'll throw a curveball at you, okay. and then I'll answer it myself. 
but I don't know exactly how I'll answer it yet, is what in your memory is your one of your funnier or more fun adventure stories that we've had together? Oh, dude, the firm. The firm. Come on. Yeah. The firm story. That's too long of a story to I tell. I know. That's a good story, though. That's a good story. Um, Give the synopsis. The synopsis? The, the Without giving notes. the whole... The Cliff Notes version? Yeah, you could... You could give the, like, what was the best part of that whole story <laughs> for you? I don't know if there was one part. The whole thing was amazing. Yeah. Uh, Johnny and I sitting at home, uh, summer evening, late at night, 11 p.m. This is back in the day before you had, you know, DVRs and whatever, and you had to actually drive to go rent a movie. We were going to go to Blockbuster. It was 11 o'clock, so I'm like, hey, let's go to the movie. Blockbuster closes at midnight. You're like, I'm game. We go, we get a movie. Of course, you know, because, you know, we were in your car and you, I think you were wearing boxers and a wife beater. I walked out at least with shorts on. I didn't yeah. just have underwear on, but yeah. And uh, so I was the one running in the blockbuster, so at least I had some clothes on. Ran in, got our movie. Coming back, out of nowhere, these kids jump out of the road, throw eggs at us, and egg us, you know. And so immediately, you were driving, so you, like, slammed on the brakes. I'm like, turn around, turn around. I'm like, let's go get these fuckers, you know? And, uh, I mean, do we want to go into the whole story, or do you want to just... Well, yeah. The I, yeah, I would just say the, you know, ultimately, Pete says to turn, you know, and chase these kids, and... I'm, to- I'm pointing, you know... 50 yards up the road, turn, turn, turn here, turn. In my head, I'm going, turn here, turn here. But what I'm saying is, turn, turn, turn. And I'm expecting you to understand that I meant to turn on the street, like in the yeah. next turn, the yeah. actual turn. <clears throat> but, but, if you, anyone, but if anyone doesn't know what a berm is, it's like this little like mound of, of, you know, earth. of earth that oftentimes kind of just that people plant trees on that kind of you know, separates, yeah, it's Irrigation. like, the, yeah, it separates the property line from the street. <laughs> to, and so I ended up just turning because I knew in my head there was this gate of this, uh, the gate that was closed to the entrance to this neighborhood. And so I just turned and hit this berm. And I, and I certainly remember that slow motion moment. Yeah. It was Duke's a hazard. Yeah. It was like, Woo! but the what? wheels were like, Woo! Yeah, I remember all of them were spinning. We, yeah, we well, were we, in, we were going. You were. We were probably going sixty miles an hour. We hit no Johnny sixty miles an yes. hour. <laughs> no. John, listen, you know this is male code. <laughs> male code. Every time you tell the story, it oh, has to get okay. bigger and better. So we're going at least sixty-five, sixty-seven. Yeah, let's just leave it. Yeah, And Johnny hits the berm, and yeah, dude, the classic moment. While we're flying through the air, literally, and you can hear the wheels, and I'm like slowly looking over at him like, what the fuck are we doing? And you looking at me like, the fuck are we doing? We both don't know. I think think we were high-fiving at that point. (laughs) It was just slow motion. It was a little like, okay, let's see what happens now. And then, we hit the ground. We go tearing across this person's yard. I never let off the accelerator. I hit the grass (laughs) of that person's yard, and we just kept on fish kind of flying through that yard. But it's funny to think about. A, we we rented Ali, Will Smith. Was like, no, it was a uh, th- um, uh, when was, we when we were kings. It was the yeah. Muhammad Ali documentary. Oh, it was a documentary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's just interesting. We, so we we're renting a, a a very masculine movie. Movie. Yeah. You know, I am 
just listening to what you literally said, jump, and I said, how far? You yeah, know? it was a little brother code. Like, but it was total. But it was totally. Big brother like, said to yeah, turn. You're like, okay. Big brother. Yeah, but that was the, what, what I did from four years old on. Johnny, go get some ice. And I went out there and, you know, yeah. we'd, we'd pick fights and stuff like that in the, at, at four years old. But, like, that's the funny thing, right? It just till, c- comes back around to this whole story. Yeah. And then you want to go beat some kids up because they just threw eggs on our windshield, yeah. you know? And, and lo, lo and behold, long story short, or long story long, I go back the way we came. because no, the, so, Yeah, so we turned around. We were going to go out the the subdivision entrance, but right. then but there was the we saw there. the gates. So we're like, well, we came <clears> in a certain way. Let's go out the same way. Yeah. But we weren't going 67 miles an hour no, this time. we were going like six miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, 15 miles an hour. And I end up getting the 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 car to pop up and like teeter totter on the berm with all four wheels dude, off the ground. Did the look on your face when we we were driving and we went up and then the car just went <laughs> and like just stopped and we just looked at each other like that did not just happen. Oh shit, that did not. But then happen. yeah, but then you hear the same noise which is <laughs> wheels spinning. Wee! But there was no slow motion. We were just sitting there in a face person's palm. yard. The ultimate face. Yeah, palm. what just happened? So, long story short, we, we got out of that without uh, going to jail, which we'll tell the story later. I mean, not Yeah, that stories. was a very real possibility, especially when the neighbor came out and started yelling at us for being racist to her kids. We were like, lady, yeah. we don't even know who you are. What yeah, you yeah, yeah, exactly. That is that is a good one. There's I'm sure There's been many adventures we've been on. Yeah. We almost died on the north shore of, of uh, Maui. Maui. Yeah. Uh, with the surf. Which with part? the boogie boards, with the boogie, boogie boards without yeah. without fins. Yes, oh my god! And those waves, Dude, the rip currents, was but the waves were like massive, smashing us into the sand. But I would lose sight of you, and you were only like twenty yards away. Yeah, because the waves were the swells were so big, and we were, and yeah, that was a good one. When we were just we were just recently in Park City skiing a week ago, and for me to go by, you were skiing <laughs> yeah. that day, just to go by, and I'm like, oh, there's the hill, the hill where, again. <laughs> this is me following my brother as if he's my father, like doing, if he said jump how high, and we were cruising when we were, I don't know, I was 12, 13, 14 yeah. maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And you were 17. Yeah. You were in high school and I yeah. was in junior high. Yeah. So we were going down this green run, which Ski- we thought, yeah, was screaming as fast as we could. Screaming down this mountain. How fast were you going? 67 miles 67 an hour. miles an hour yeah. as a 13, I was a 13 year old. And so, but then Pete tears up this like incline, and I'm like right behind him. But the thing is, when you don't realize that when you, when you actually are on skis and you start going up an incline, your your edges catch, and you almost can't turn back down the hill. Yeah, I suppose you could if you knew what you were doing. <laughs> yeah. But that was the missing ingredient, <laughs> right, for, for us. Yeah, I I hit this embankment and rocketed up because we were going fast. <laughs> Rocketed like up the side pipe. of this. Yeah, it like exactly. For those who are listening, it was kind of like the side of a half pipe, but but tw- you know what, two times as high or something. Yeah. Like it yeah, wasn't yeah, just yeah. a little thing; it was no. like the side of a mountain. <laughs> yeah. So I go rocketing up this thing, and then I see this log, you know, perpendicular to me. It was like it was right at the, <laughs> the point where most of that was all like skied on, yeah. or like groomed. It wasn't really groomed; it was skied on. And then there was that log, and then everything above that was powder. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> so the, so I'm coming up to the log, and it's about to basically cut my ankles off. Yeah. And so I jump, and thank God, I mean, my, I came out of my skis, 
I go flying through the air. I kind of spin around and land on my butt looking back at you. I see my two skis sticking out from underneath the log like, you know, and then the look on your face. Half of my upbringing was the look on your face (laughs) going, what are we doing? And the look on your face as you're coming up going, (coughs) now what? Oh, shit. Yeah. Now what do I do? Only to do exactly the same thing. The skis. So all four skis sticking out from underneath this log you go flying through the air land right next to you look at each other just start dying laughing like, yeah i think the funny part was that it was like i was sitting to your left but then to my left were your skis and to the left of that was my skis like there was like there was space for four of us right i wasn't just sitting right in front of my skis yeah. i hopped all the way to the far side of you and then we just kind of were sitting there dangling our feet over this log as our skis were just you know and people would ski by and be like what are they, how did they do? Yeah. You know? We're like, oh my gosh. That was oh, that was hilarious. And that happened many times. It did. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Go uh, jump on that sled and <clears throat> go as fast as you can. But I didn't yeah, that was another another one for well, another time. I re- I remember there was that one time I was watching uh this is when we were kids and I we were watching some WWE thing it was on and uh i saw this maneuver i think it was ww it might have been an action movie or something anyway i saw this yeah i saw this maneuver on tv and immediately i was like oh that's cool we're trying that hey johnny get in here (laughs) and this is so classic big brother little brother uh i literally just said to you hey run at me that was the only instructions I gave yeah. you. And you're like, yeah, okay, I'm down. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's go. Let's like, do this. And you just sprinted at me. I drop, I do this like drop roll to my back. I catch you on my feet and launch you as you go flipping, flying over <laughs> me. And I remember watching you through the air and you hit the wall upside down and slid down into a, a big pile of toys. <laughs> and this is also a recurring pattern for me is this feeling of like, Oh, probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> like, oh, I feel really bad. Me and my feet are just like dangling in the air like, hey, yeah, help. And I'm pretty <clears> sure <throat> I was kind of like, I think I screwed that up. Do it one more time. <laughs> I was like, no. Yeah. You, yeah, it's like you grabbed my wrists, you grabbed my hands, yeah. planted your feet in the middle of my chest, and then did a backwards somersault you. and launched me in the direction I was going. Right, because I was upside down. Practicing. You didn't need to practice. You nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. I was counted Perfect. out. <laughs> Count me out. I was KO'd at that point. Oh, man. <clears throat> Good times. Well, how can people uh, find you on your podcast or get in touch with you? Yep. Uh, PKExperience.com is probably the best way to do that. You can always find me at JohnnyKing.com as well. And absolutely, if you want more of this, feel free to get in touch with either one of us. Uh, check out our corresponding podcasts. Uh, like share subscribe all the good stuff and thanks for validate validate love yeah (laughs) all those things thanks for tuning in and that's our show for today i want to thank you so much for listening and hey if you got something positive from this episode i'd be honored if you'd share it on your favorite social platform It also really helps to get the word out if you subscribe and leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts because I read every single one. Something you think we could be doing better? 
I love constructive feedback as it's always welcome. And please feel free to email me at podcast at johnnyking.com with any questions or concerns. I'm also available on Instagram at Johnny King or on Facebook.com backslash Johnny King Men's Coach. Thanks again for joining me. I've been Johnny King. You've been awesome. And we'll catch up with you next time. Peace. Peace.